It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 86. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from MacMost.com. So how's life, Gary? What you been up to? Oh, usual, getting stuff done. I've got some uh, things I'll mention towards the end of the, the show, particularly mm-hmm. to this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that... Question. I'm kind of curious. Um, For various reasons, um, I end end up working several weeks in advance. Um, It happened mostly last year that I was planning on something where I was not going to be available for a week. And then I was available anyway, so I kept it. So I'm, you know, the Mondays are my, uh, the days where I spend most of my day writing content. Um, but it's for content that's not going to like get published for three weeks or so. Um, how about you? How close to the how close to the deadline do you run? I am trying to maintain the standard of one week. Um, so today I was working on the video that will go live at MacMost next Tuesday. Um, Got it. So you know, it's I figure if I get the flu, you know, right. or something that makes my voice scratch or me just not feel like working. I want to be far enough ahead where I can just say, okay, I'm going to take a few days right. and not get any work done. But I also don't necessarily release things in order. So say if tomorrow Apple were to announce new MacBooks or something, and I'd want to do an episode on that, I could do that and put that forward in line to like go out right away and push everything back one day. Right, right. Since I've got, so you're, and you actually don't have anybody um, um, involved in your process, do you? That's just me. Just you, yeah. Yeah. See, I've got um, both an editor and an assistant who are helping, um, A, make sure my my sentences make sense, but um, also, uh, you know, just part of of the publishing machine, getting to turning the crank each week. So what that means is we've actually got a shared spreadsheet of all the articles and so forth and when they're getting published or republished over the course of the next few weeks. I could do the same thing, right? If there's a breaking news that I need to do something on right away, um, yeah, we can certainly shuffle things around, but it sounds like it's just a little bit more of a hassle than it would be for you because I've actually got to coordinate amongst yeah. a couple of different people. I actually have a similar document, but nobody looks at it but me. I, right. I could show it to like my dog or my wife, but both are equally as disinterested in, <laughs> in the document. Uh, so it's just basically for me to keep things straight. I've never thought about showing it to the dogs. We'll have to try that. Just see, you know, you never know. With my luck, he'll lift a leg on it. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So actually, that actually slides into um, something I mentioned last week, um, the story that I was, I was going to talk about this week, um, using YouTube for unintended uh, processes. So one of the things uh, my assistant does for the videos that I produce is when they are off the cuff, like, uh, well, even like this podcast is off the cuff, but uh, some of the videos I do are just me yakking at the camera or describing what I'm showing on the screen, much, much like you do, I think. Um, and uh, I have her actually transcribe it. So you get a true transcription uh, of the words that I say on the video, which is, you know, helpful for some people. Not everybody likes to consume content the same way. Anyway, uh, it dawned on me, I had, I had a scenario the other day where, uh, actually not for Ask Leo, but for something else, where I had a, 
uh, literally just an audio file. I had recorded somebody's audio and I wanted to create a transcription. But because this was not part of the business, there was no budget and I couldn't really see, you know, turning, turning one of my assistants loose on that. So I thought of this interesting scenario. And here's, it's a little convoluted, but it shows you how we've got all this technology at our fingertips that we can use in ways that are just completely counterintuitive. So I took the audio, which was literally just an MP3, I think it was. Uh, I dropped it into Camtasia. Now Camtasia is the screen recording software that I use, but it also happens to have a really good video editor. I grabbed a, just a random image that would be the image for what ended up being a video I would create. So all I was really doing was converting the MP3 into an MP4 video. Mm-hmm. Camtasia, Camtasia required that there be an image for me to do that. Then I took that MP4 and I uploaded it to YouTube. Now I didn't do it publicly. It's private. You, when you upload things to YouTube, you can schedule them. You can give them to uh, give people with uh, specific Google accounts access to it. Mm-hmm. You can make it public, which is I think what most people are familiar with. Or you can also just keep it completely private. Nobody can see it but you, which is exactly what I wanted. So I uploaded this this audio slash video, and I waited. Because one of the things that YouTube does for their videos is if you don't provide, and maybe even if you do, but if you don't provide closed captioning, they'll provide it for you. In other Mm -hmm. words, they're going to analyze the audio in your video and run that through speech to text and then make that available with a little CC button for people who are watching the video. Sometimes it's interesting that they do an, a, actually a, a pretty decent job. I've been very impressed with it. They go off the rails when you're talking about, you know, techie terms or especially if the if there's noise in the audio or if the speaker happens to be someone who mumbles or, you know, just or has, speaks so fast like I do. Uh, you know, it actually does an okay job with speaking fast as well. It really has, I think, a lot to do with uh, just how well you enunciate, uh, right. even as fast as you may or may not speak. Anyway, um, you know, and we've all seen, I mean, if we've, if we've turned on closed captioning, uh, even on TV shows for that matter, every once in a while you can tell it was machine generated because what is ri- what shows up on the screen is not what was said. Sometimes it can be quite entertaining. Anyway, so YouTube does that. But what a lot of people don't know is that after they do that, you could download what they've interpreted as. So I went on to YouTube Studio, which is where all these videos are available to me. And I went over to the closed captioning section and downloaded a text file. Now, the text file has essentially two pieces of information in it. It has the words that YouTube recognized, but it also has the timing. So for my purposes at that point, I just went out and stripped out all the timing and then started to clean up the words. So it was a very, very convoluted process, that, uh, but free, that actually does a pretty reasonable job of turning somebody's spoken audio into a text file that you can then use in other ways. In my case, I ended up publishing it. I actually ended up using it as um, a script 
for something else that I'll be doing for one of the, for, you know, for one of the organizations I support. Um, essentially, what what this boiled down to was somebody was giving a presentation, and I'm in the process of recording a video version of that same presentation, and I just wanted to use her words, make sure I had all the topics outlined. And the easiest way for me to generate that script was just to record her and then convert it all to text. So it's just, there are so many things available to us. And this, anybody can do this, right? Anybody can upload to YouTube. Anybody can grab these things. Um, it's just, a, I just, I just was real proud of myself. This is like the quintessential definition of a hack, right? Yeah. This is, this is hacking together two or three different pieces of technology to come up with um, a neat way to solve a problem. Hey, you know, I, I can't believe you're, you're saying all this because as it turns out, this very week, <laughs> I did something very similar. Um, matter of fact, I spent a whole afternoon on this because um, I was, I've been updating one of my courses uh, the great second edition, which I'll talk about at the end. Uh, and one of the things I was doing is, you know, looking at what the old course had and then, you know, doing it with the new software. And sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to watch your own video for like 10 minutes, watch what you do, take notes on it to figure out, okay, this is what I did in this video and then recreate it. And I'm like, it would be nice if I had a transcript I could just read. Um, I do have my regular videos transcribed not just by YouTube's automatic process like you're talking about, right. but have somebody do it professionally and then upload it to YouTube. I actually have that done after the fact. So it's not part of my process. Right. I just, it's just an automatic thing that happens because you can actually give somebody um, access to different parts of your YouTube account for, right. for purposes like this. It's interesting. Right. So I, I thought for a, a few minutes, um, well, first thing I did is I said, you know, how expensive can it be to get tra transcriptions? I've looked into this in years past, but it's 2020. Surely it must be very cheap or there must be a software solution that's, you know, similar to what YouTube is doing that, you know, I could pay 30 bucks or, you know, something cheap. And I was surprised to find that prices really haven't changed too much. Yeah. Most professional transcription services are still about a dollar a minute and will take some time to get the results back. There are some that are cheaper, all the way down to 10 cents a minute, um, which is you know about getting a lot better, and those are using computer stuff on the other end, right. and then you get your stuff back, but still charging per minute. Uh, I was hoping there would be some, some version of YouTube software out there that I could get, or a, a kind of a pay a fee and um, you know, you, you can just do, use it as much as you want. Right. And I think stuff like that is coming. I've had to explain to a few users why it's, it's so easy now for years, both Mac and Windows have had dictation services built right in, but transcription seems to some people to be the same thing, but right. in fact, it's not because transcription is taking audio that just goes on and on and on in a, you know, very linear consistent way and transcribing it, whereas dictation is the person stops and you can see what's going on and you, you know, dictate each line and oh, it's yeah. a very back and forth process. But anyway, I, I thought, Hey, I know how I'll do this. I know how I'll transcribe these videos. I'll upload them to YouTube <laughs> to an account and I'll do exactly what you just described. And I almost did that. And then I realized that those very videos were already at Udemy because they were the, my old course. Right. 
And Udemy does the same thing YouTube does. So I said, oh, wait a minute. And I went on to my, you know, my instructor side of Udemy and I'm like, oh, there's all the transcriptions. Download, please. And cool. I got the automatic transcriptions of my old course from Udemy. I don't know how they compared quality-wise. They were right. certainly good enough for me to use as notes to say, okay, here's what I talked about. I right. did see mistakes in them, especially technical terms like you're saying. But it would have been like if I had to transcribe my own stuff, like say an hour long video, it would have saved a significant amount of time to do that, take the transcription there and then simply edit it right. to get everything right. And uh, probably yeah, could have done it 10 minutes. I think that's one of the one of the the big differences between the professional services and these automated solutions. By the way, like you, I went looking first. I figured, you know, it's mm-hmm. been a couple of years since I looked at, at transcription um, you know, speech to text, and there's got to be a service out there. I went and looked at uh, like the cloud services. I expected uh, Amazon Web Services to have something yeah. uh, that was easy to set up. But of course, yes, they've got all sorts of technology, but they don't have applications. They just have, you know, the back end nuts and bolts for other people to build applications on top of. I didn't want to do that. And But yeah, same thing. I went and looked for software solutions. I figured somewhere, somewhere there's got to be a cheap upload an mp3 and download a text file a little later but not that i could find so I, I can find yeah i uh this is an interesting topic because so i i another thing i did was since my courses go up to vimeo right which is kind of the the pro version of youtube you know mm-hmm. youtube's free vimeo you have to pay but you get all these cool features so i'm using vimeo for my course videos and they have transcription thing there but they don't do it automatically for you right but they allow you to upload your own right. and they have a couple tie-ins with other services. What I was hoping was one of those 10 cents a minute services would be tied in and I can make it automatic. I could say, here's my credit card number, automatically transcribe anything I upload at 10 cents a minute. Right. And, but it wasn't like that. First of all, it was not the 10 cents a minute services. It was more like the dollar or $3 a minute services. Right. Right. And it wasn't quite automatic. I used to, before I had somebody do it professionally, I used to do this not with Amazon Web Services, but with another Amazon service called Mechanical Turk. Oh yeah, which is still around, and you could you know assign these tasks to people to do. And one of the things that was easy to do was to basically take a bunch of videos, say you know here the links to all these videos. Uh, each one is worth a dollar. Uh, just you know give me a transcript of it. Right. And one of the weird things is you get basically a different person doing every single one. Right? You never you never get the same person twice almost. Uh, and the quality varies. So I would put like do batches of say like thirty videos at a time. You know, a month uh, month and a half's worth of videos. Mm-hmm. And I do it, and maybe fifteen of them I look at them and they'd be like, "These are good." The other fifteen I put back into the queue and get somebody else to do them because <laughs> you know. And eventually I'd get them all done because right. sometimes they would be pretty bad. Uh, and uh, one of the things I did was um, that was interesting is early on I uh, had it set to only allow people in the United States to do it because I thought, "Oh, I need these transcribed in English." I'm speaking American English. Right. I for quality I should say United States only. And then I started to think about it after, you know, not having such great quality. It's like, well, I'm paying like a dollar. <laughs> and, you know, in the United States, I, I've talked to people sometimes in the United States, and I wonder if English is their first language because, you know, sometimes grammar right. isn't so good. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I 
had this idea where I said, uh, well, I, actually, I, I bumped into somebody who, uh, I forget if he was from India or just knew people in India, and he said, oh, they speak much better English yep. in India than they do in the United States. So I switched that to only allow people in India to do it, and the quality skyrocketed. <laughs> <laughs> It was so, the quality was so good uh, when I did that, and that's how I did it until the end. It was only allowing people in India to do it uh, with their much better uh, spelling and grammar skills than that's Americans. pretty funny. That's yeah. pretty funny. Um, yeah, I thought the direction I thought you were going was that uh, one of the things I did, gosh, a few years ago, we were playing around with video because, of course, at the time, video was the thing. Everybody should do video. Yeah. And by the way, we should all be doing video on Facebook. And video on Facebook does really well if you happen to do captions because a lot of people play their videos uh, muted right away. Yeah. Uh, so one of the solutions is to do everything I just described with a Google video, with the uh, YouTube video, download the captions, that file format you can then upload directly to Facebook. Oh. So if you've got, you know, if you haven't made any changes to the video, so it's exactly the same timing, then um, you essentially get your Facebook closed captioning for free at the same time. Oh, that's a good idea. Yep, yep. And so the this mechanical approach using technology to do it, um, it works well for certain solutions, certain types of things, but I still end up wanting to rely on people for things that I publish as, you know, here's me doing something on video and here's a transcription for you to read. I mm -hmm. want those words to match. And that's not something that the, the automated solutions uh, really do very well. Mm -hmm. But uh, for almost anything else, uh, it's actually pretty cool. It's actually pretty cool. So what you got for me, Gary? Well, I came across an interesting topic um, that... Uh, is about something called hashes. Uh, I, I briefly mentioned this last week. So it turns out that there is a, you know, in the, today's world of privacy, but also law enforcement wanting to stop the bad guys uh, and that back and forth, there is a kind of interesting middle ground for one particular uh, type of crime that has been found and has actually been used for years. And a lot of people don't know about it. And it's called... Uh, uh, hashing or image hashes, and it's used in particular to fight uh, child pornography and child trafficking and other related crimes. The way it works is like this. There is a way for companies like Apple, Google, and Facebook to know whether or not you've sent illegal images without actually seeing the images. And the way they do it is called ha uh, using these hashes. Hashes are kind of like a digital fingerprint that can identify an image without actually seeing the image. It's kind of like, I mean, if you want to compare it to a fingerprint, it's, you know, imagine somebody finds a fingerprint at a crime scene. The fingerprint itself has no information about the person. The person's name isn't written in it, doesn't tell you how tall they are or where they live or anything. It's just a identifier, unique identifier. If you then take that fingerprint and match it to a database that has that fingerprint in it, the database can then say, this fingerprint belongs to this person. And these kinds of hashes are kind of like fingerprints for images. An image has a fingerprint too. And the fingerprint looks is nothing like the image itself, but it's kind of a unique identifier. Imagine, for instance, if you would, uh, a simple hash would be if you 
took every pixel in an image and every pixel was represented by a number that you know said how much red, green, and blue was in that pixel. And you added them all together. So you added the, the number of the first pixel, the number of the second pixel, and all, all the way you know, to the you know, million pixels that are in an image. And you came up with a unique number that was the total of all those pixels. That would be a weird number, and it wouldn't really be that long. It would be like in the billions. So you'd be something like a 10-digit number. Um, and that number would be unlikely to be used by almost any other image. So you couldn't see anything from just looking at 10 digits, but you could identify whether that image was the same image as another one. If you had two images, A and B, and they both had exactly the same number when you added all the pixels together, then it's like a one in a billion chance that that those two images are identical. And in fact, the type of hashes they use are much more complex, where it's almost impossible for two images uh, to have the same fingerprint unless they were exactly the same image, even though that fingerprint is just a small number that you really can't tell what's there. So it turns out that they use that, this to fight child pornography. Actually, Microsoft was uh, the company that, that was at the forefront of figuring this out. And then they donated all this technology to basically the government and, to, and, and allow anybody to use it. And there's a database of illegal images with the hashes there. And companies like Apple, Facebook, and Google can actually see an image go through their system, their email system, and they compare its fingerprint to this database. And if it matches, then they know that it is almost completely certain that that is an identical image to something that has already been identified as legal. Uh, in the case of Apple, uh, and I, we'll have the link to an article at Forbes, uh, there was a, uh, I think it's a freedom of information request that kind of revealed exactly how Apple does this. Uh, when they find images that, you know, have these hashes, uh, then a, the, the email kind of, first of all, it gets stopped. It's not sent, right? So it appears something's wrong. Your email just doesn't get to the recipient. And the other thing is that it comes to the attention of a human at Apple, so some sort of law enforcement type of private law enforcement at Apple, uh, who then checks the images. Now, two observations there. First is uh, what you know, a horrible job to have. I know. <laughs> there have been articles uh, about people who have been who are in that kind of a position and uh, just how difficult it is on their psyche. Well, especially considering that the math behind this, you know, the reason a human checks it is to make sure that it really is the bad image. Now, the math says it's always the bad image, always. Like you could work that job your entire life. There could be a room of 100 people working that job their entire lives. It's going to be what exactly what image they think it is every single time, right? right. Um, but, you know, they do it anyway, just to be sure, because there is a small, slight chance it could be uh, a false positive. And then, um, and then that's sent... You know, at that point, then they contact law enforcement and say, oh, we got somebody doing something, trying to use our system to do something illegal. Um, it's interesting, too, that Apple must have people that are, I mean, this is their job that, you know, you're into, I guess it's a, one branch of cybersecurity, right? right. Uh, is is Apple has people that, that do this, <laughs> that they, they care about this. And so does Google and Facebook, according to this article here. And I'm sure that means that so does Microsoft and all these other, I'm sure Microsoft does because they invented 
uh, so, system. So I have a question. Yeah. Hashes yeah. Are, 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 I think they're fascinating. Um, yeah. Ask Leo readers will have, will know that I've spoken or written about hashes quite a bit, usually in the context of cryptography because they're very important. And of mm. course, they're very important ways of doing things like storing passwords secure, securely, where as you described, um, it's a it's a one way thing, right? You can take a you can hash a password, mm-hmm. you can turn a password into a hash, um, and only that password will generate that hash. But you can't just take a random hash and regenerate the password right. from it. It's one a one way function. The other characteristic, though, of hashes is that they um, they change largely for minuscule changes in their input. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you change one bit of your password, you know, mm-hmm. you change the, uh, the uppercase A to a lowercase A, which is a one bit change in your password, then the resulting hash is dramatically different. Yeah, it's completely different, yeah. So how does that not apply to images? Um, images to begin with uh, tend to be, I, I wanna say, I'll say fuzzy, and I don't mean that optically fuzzy, I mean that they are typically compressed, uh, JPEG format is a compressed format. There's metadata in with the images. Uh, various services like Facebook is known to recompress images once they're displayed on the screen. Um, it seems like, first of all, anybody who's the least bit knowledgeable about hashes, all they really need to do is go change the bit, recompress the thing, and it no longer matches the the fingerprint that these government agencies have stored. Is there something more to this hashing algorithm that that kind of accounts for the fact that images can be the same visually and yet quite different digitally? Right. I, you know, I, I thought about that uh, while researching this, and I couldn't find any good information about what's actually happening here with these images. One option is that they're just catching people who are not changing these images at all. I mean, most right. people don't know how to do, you know, to change an image. Um, they'll just forward on whatever image they've got or, or whatever, or maybe they don't. I mean, maybe they, they are dealing with lots of images and they screw up one time and send an image as is. And that's all it takes is to catch them. Mm-hmm. Um, there also could be, you know, just thinking, go, leaning back on my computer science background, you could develop a hashing system for images that doesn't rely on it being bit for bit perfect. You know, you could go like, what if you came up with a hashing system where it looked at various colors in various parts of the image, you know, it took averages and all this stuff. You could come up with a fingerprint of a, an image that even if you say recompressed it from 80% JPEG to 60% JPEG or shrunk it from, you know, a four megapixel image to a two megapixel image, you would still get the same actual hash. Right. If the image was the same. Um, it's possible, theoretically, um, that you could do that. So I don't know which one is true, which one's being, uh, is the case. Uh, another thing that could happen is they could simply go and take an image uh, and automatically create a series of hashes to say, what if somebody did, say, use the default setting on Adobe Photoshop to recompress it? Then it would have this uh, hash. You know, and let's generate 100 very obvious uh, variations on that. So if somebody did go and want to say, oh, I'll just do a quick, re-, like you said, uh, images are recompressed 
if you upload them to Facebook or if you upload them to even through email, like on the, on the Mac Mail app, you know, by default, it will compress images. But if you include, you know, take that first image and include the hash for the image processed in that way as an alternative fingerprint, then it's possible you can still, ca- you know, catch people. Right. I mean, I'm sure this isn't perfect. There's because you could, you could, you wouldn't really need to go to the lengths of re compressing an image or doing any of that. All you would need to do is encrypt it. If you encrypt the image, right. it, You're done. there's no way. Yeah, right. th- th- these only work because email is not secure um, in much the same way that regular mail is not secure. There's just It's just not encrypted. It's, right. Chances are your email is never going to be seen by anybody else except the person you're sending it to and might not even be seen by them. Um, and uh, <laughs> the, but it's, it's not being, you know, people think it's encrypted. You know, sometimes people think it's encrypted. Sometimes people misunderstand the fact that email being sent from their computer to their email service, since that's encrypted, they think the whole thing is. But in fact, uh, from me, if I sent you something uh, from me to iCloud and then you got it, say, through Gmail, it would be encrypted from me to iCloud. It would be encrypted from Gmail to you. But between iCloud and Gmail, not necessarily. Not necessarily, although I know that the infrastructure is improving and they are slowly making that encrypted as well. More to the point, while it sits on the iCloud servers and Mm -hmm. while it sits on the Gmail servers, it's not encrypted at all. Right. Now, you you could encrypt something yourself. Like, you can create a PDF... And you know, put type a couple of lines of text and in, into a word processor, save it as a PDF with a password, it encrypts it, attach that as an attachment, send it, and then you're sending this encrypted message. To the person at the other end, though, needs the password. Right. How does the person on the other other end get the password? Do you send it in another email? Do you call them on the phone? You know, there's the only way to do it securely is actually to do it in person. Um, unless you previously have established a uh, sort of password or encryption system with them, right. uh, which is why you don't have uh, encrypted email. And a lot of people think, oh, this, you know, how, why can I send something like with WhatsApp that's encrypted, but I can't send email? And it's because WhatsApp is a single service that everybody's using. Point to point. Uh, a point to point. Email is not. Email goes from one email server to, point to another. Point to point to point to point. Right. <laughs> and so when you get, uh, like, you visit your doctor, you go for your annual physical, they take blood to check all your levels. You get an email a week later that says, your results are waiting for you. Log into your account. And it right. won't, and, and there's a lot of people who say, that's so frustrating. Why don't they just put the results in the email message right there. And it's because it's not secure. And, you know, at least uh, some people get it. Of course, sometimes you do get sensitive things in emails and you're like, ah, come on. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things came to mind about, about you know, how do you, how do you fingerprint similar images, right? Mm-hmm. Images that are either just one bit different or even not so much, you know, more, more than that. I was thinking about it. If you take a JPEG image mm-hmm. and crank its quality down, mm-hmm. right? So if you have like five versions of the same picture, all at, all with maybe one bit changes or, you know, ones at quality um, 10 on a 10 scale, ones at quality eight on a 10 scale, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But they're all the same picture. If you all, if you were to take those images and recompress them down to quality level, I don't know, two, right? Mm-hmm. It would not look like a very interesting picture. 
but would they all compress down? Would they all end up being reduced to the same level two quality? In other words, is that one way to funnel all of these variations of the image into something that, at least for the purposes of a fingerprint, yeah. um, would be the same? Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, maybe not doing it the way we're thinking, like, you know, thinking of using a JPEG and going to 2% quality. Right. But you could come up with a different way to compress the image that's yes. specifically for this purpose that you would if you started with an 80% or a 60% JPEG, both would go and become the same, same exact thing. thing. Yep. If, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that is exactly what, you know, uh, uh, I forget the name of Microsoft's uh, Microsoft's project here that started this whole thing, but uh, something with DNA, photo DNA, mm -hmm. I think. It could be. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. And uh, maybe that's the whole point of that and what they're doing. Yeah, photo DNA for Microsoft. So, um, what I think is is actually fairly ironic is here we're using the term fingerprint yeah. to uh, to describe this. Um, in terms of actual fingerprints. Uh, they may save pictures, but the actual data that gets compared is actually an analysis of the patterns. So it's actually doing things like storing um, vectors and curves and sure. points and those kinds of things that are, um, they are not bit for bit the picture of a fingerprint. They are data that describes the fingerprint. Describes it, that's right, and yeah. That maybe they're doing something similar like that with with the photographs. Could very well be, about. and yeah. it could be evolving too. Now the other uh, end of this is the you know the privacy end of this. Forgetting about the, how the technology works, mm -hmm. you know it's interesting to think that uh, normal law-abiding citizens can send pictures back and forth by email, and as soon as somebody sends an illegal one, you know they're caught. Right. So you've got this interesting thing where it's like. It, it's, it's kind of an ideal. It's like if you don't do if if you don't do anything wrong, you won't even be suspected. Like it won't be recorded. You, nothing will. There'll be nothing happening. But then, almost intuitively, uh, the technology will catch something that's wrong. You know, an illegal image, uh, or and also this is used for things like uh, terrorism too. Right. So I don't know, like a picture of. You know, something they've identified as a terrorist image, maybe military plans. I don't know what it would be. Uh, you know, if they tag an image and say, oh, this is, this is something we want to know who else sends this image back and forth uh, over the Internet, uh, they could do that too. It, it's interesting because we don't want our stuff to be tracked. Uh, we don't want other people looking at our images. We don't want people recording our images and, you know, maybe coming up with excuses later on as to why this image uh, is, uh, you, you know, something that should, I don't know, qualify us for a loan or, you know, something. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things. Like, you know, people are concerned about the privacy. Oh, uh, you know, a hypochondriac searches for a medical condition online and then the healthcare provider can see their search history and say, oh, we're going to charge you more because it seems like you may have something wrong, <laughs> you know. It, it's interesting because when you, when you think about the technique that's being used here, nobody's looking at your pictures. Nobody's, and nobody's saving them, which is, right. I think, a very key difference there is a you know interesting thing that we've hit on before about like the ring doorbells right. and how they record the whole street in front of you and how you can allow police to have access to your your doorbell camera 
uh, and that the law says that they can store and keep those images. So what you're doing is providing, uh, you know, a potentially unlimited storage of images from whoever walks by your house. So now if I'm walking down the street in my neighborhood, and there are probably many of these doorbell cameras there, I'm being recorded and put onto servers owned by law enforcement. I didn't do anything. I'm just right. walking to the store, but yet my image is now all over the place. They can go in if they want and track where I've been. How often do I go to the store? How often do I walk down this street? How many times do I walk my dog through the park? All this from these uh, images through doorbell cameras. And it's unsettling to think that because, of course, you read dystopian fiction and all this stuff or, or maybe not dystopian, but what would be the term? And 1984 kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, where they could kind of just decide to like, oh, we're going to figure out something, you know, this guy did and just build a story based on all this data that they've got. And so, you know, the idea here in the United States anyway is if you don't do anything, if you're not doing anything wrong or illegal, then you, sh- you shouldn't be, your photos shouldn't be taken or recorded and your movements shouldn't be tracked and you shouldn't be in a database for, you know, just doing normal everyday things. Uh, this system that we're talking about, the hashes on photos kind of uh, works for that. Like it, right. it isn't uh, well, bothering it, anybody else. And it not doesn't, it doesn't anything. right? I mean, the, the, the difference I think you're trying to point out is that the data is not saved, yeah. but it's still being examined. Now it's not being examined by humans. Right. And it's not actually being, the hash is being examined. Not- right, but, but the hash was calculated by reading the file. So the hash, mm-hmm. you know, was in, is a sense, in a sense, a result of examining the image right. digitally, right? Having a computer do that. Uh, that, I think, is the part where people get uncomfortable because when I send pictures of my dog mm-hmm. to a friend via email, somebody, somebody, something is looking at those pictures. They're generating a hash and finding that it's not in a database. On the surface, sounds fine. I'm not going to be sending out pictures that, that don't, uh, you know, that are actually most of my pictures are all about dogs anyway. But, <laughs> um, but still, that's, that's kind of sort of an invasion of privacy, even though that no human is actually ever involved in it, unless now there's what we might refer to as some kind of probable cause to say that, um, uh, you know, this image matches the characteristics of other images that have these other bad characteristics. And I use the word probable cause intentionally because, of course, that's a very specific legal term here in the United States that allows the police to uh, to search your home, for example, if they have probable cause right. that a crime has been committed. So, yeah, this is all, all pretty interesting stuff. Um, yeah. It's, mm. Yep. So one of the other things uh, I was thinking of as we were talking about this, they don't necessarily even have to be looking at or for the entire picture. In other words, they don't necessarily have to have a database of these are the pictures we know are bad that I'm sure they're continually growing. Uh, another scenario, and I think it was the uh, the terrorism uh, comment you were making, another scenario is, you know, Let's examine all pictures for, I don't know, swastikas or Mm. something like that. And if we see any or if we see too many from the same person or, you know, any of those kinds of scenarios, right, that all of a sudden becomes interesting data to law enforcement. Um, It gets it. It's an interesting I'm not going to call it a slippery slope because it's a it's a technologically still a very 
big piece of work. But um, it's an interesting slope nonetheless to see how far uh, you can uh, consider taking it. Well, yeah, and uh, that's where like the human look uh, at the images comes in handy because uh, somebody sending a lot of swastikas could be part of some sort of neo-Nazi group. Uh, they could also be running a Holocaust museum. Right. You know, and archiving all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the things that they've gathered, you know, doing a digital archive. So there are a lot of different reasons why um, for all sorts of images, uh, you know, you think of somewhat legitimate reasons why um, people could be doing things uh, and yet yeah, be mindful of that. And maybe that's why, I mean, remember Apple when, you know, in this particular case, Apple is not uh, then doing anything except identifying that the images are in fact, uh, you know, the bad images. And then they simply send all that information off to uh, law enforcement and it's up to law enforcement to then go and figure out what's going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they yeah. still they're still operating with the traditional, more traditional legal burden of proof, right? Uh, outside so, of the computer. Anyway, it's, uh, it's interesting, and you know, yeah, it's interesting from a technology standpoint and from absolutely. A like I said, hashes and cryptography fascinate the crap out of me. They really do. Mm -hmm. uh, just amazes me uh, what you can and can't do. The fact, I mean, just the very concept of public key cryptography, where you end up with two numbers. Yeah. That you know, one can encrypt data that only the other one can decrypt. It's just that's magic to me. That's just pure, <laughs> pure magic. Yeah. So. Cool. All righty. Um, so, in our possibly off-topic but still pretty cool segment, uh, last week I mentioned a podcast player. The week before, I mentioned that some of what we're doing is kind of sort of inspired by a specific podcast in the sense of just the structure that we're using. Um, this week, uh, I stumbled across another uh, Digital Planet podcast from the BBC. It's another technology-based uh, podcast that I suspect if you're interested in, in TEH, uh, if, certainly if you're interested in podcasts like Smashing Security or some of Leo Laporte's uh, podcasts, Digital Planet is a really interesting one. Last week, they discussed repairing Voyager 2. I'm, it's unfortunate that Randy isn't here with us today because he, I'm sure, would have a lot to say about yeah. it. He might even enjoy listening listening to it. But the fact that you know they were able to do uh, some the ultimate remote repair work on on Voyager 2, uh, which I think is right now the uh, furthest man-made object from, from the planet. Um, yeah. It's just fascinating. Anyway, it's another one of those interesting podcasts that, you know, if you've got the time to, to sit down and listen or have it be playing in the background or listen to it on your daily commute, uh, it's well worth a, uh, a listen. Um, for me, I, I had an interesting thing this week where I was looking at, you know, Backblaze comes out with uh, their annual report on how their hard drives did. Backblaze right. does online backups. They have thousands and thousands of drives spinning all the time, and they compile data on them and once a year release the data and say, uh, you know, this is how the drives did. You know, because when, once you have a certain number of drives, you're going to have failures every day. Yeah. So which, you know, drives failed the most? And, you know, we're talking about small percentages, less than 1% or maybe 2%, you know, failure rate over the course of a year for a drive. And you can get tips on kind of who, which manufacturers are doing the best quality-wise. But for me, I was looking at this report, and one thing that stood out was I was looking at one thing they were describing, and they described it, I described a 16-terabyte drive. 
Now, sure, you can have like an array of drives. You know, where you can put a bunch of drives in and into an enclosure, and you know, you get like a lot of space in there. But I was like, 16 terabytes? Are they talking about a single drive? Uh, so I took the serial number from that drive and plugged it into Amazon. And not only uh, it, does that drive exist, but you can just buy it. It's like 400 bucks. Um, I had no idea that drives had gotten that far because typically my entire life, I've been at the outer edge of drive capacity. All the things I've done on computers oh, have required right. me to just get the biggest drives that are out there for archiving my stuff and all of that. So any point in time, you want to go to like 1995, you want to go to 2005, whenever it is, look at my desk. I've got a drive on there that's probably the biggest drive that you could get, you know, single drive. So, you know, at one time I would have had a 500 gig drive, another time I would have had a two terabyte drive. And I have a five gig drive that I had bought recently. And I just kind of assumed that that's about where we were for consumer drives. Um, I'm buying the small ones, though, the ones that, you know, are not the internal drives. So when I saw that there was a 16 terabyte drive that you could just get for 400 bucks now on Amazon, uh, I was amazed. As a matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of 12 and 14 terabyte drives uh, for ranges, you know, anywhere from 300 to 400 bucks from major manufacturers that you could buy. And it's just, uh, this is the first time in my life that I've not actually needed the top tier drives. What? It's like, you, I don't know what, I, my first, my first temptation when I brought the Amazon page up buy now, was, buy now, was buy oh, now. I have to buy this. <laughs> I, of course I need this. And I realized, no, I really don't need this. My, my existing drives are nowhere near full. Well, buy um, now, ship it overnight. Quick. I want it. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's pretty, so, so I just had no, I'd let it slip uh, past my, my knowledge sphere that right. uh, that's the, the drive technology got to the point where 400 bucks buys you 16 terabytes on so a single SATA drive. Did, did Backblaze have like good things to say about the 16 gig terabyte drives they were uh, dealing with? Did they point to a specific manufacturer? I mean, my concern yeah. with a drive of that high capacity is that its failure rate, ultimately the measure would be, does a 16 terabyte drive fail less than half as often as two eight terabyte drives. Uh, yeah. you know, those kinds of those kinds I don't, of I don't, I didn't see anything bad they said about it. I mean, they had all the manufacturers had something 12 terabytes or higher. Right. And, um, you know, the rates, it, it, there was nothing particular about the bigger drives failing more. I got a feeling the way drive technology works now, I'm not an expert at this, but the way it works now is, you know, parts can go bad. That could be bad sectors. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and then they're, you know, uh, quarantined from the rest of the drive. Right. So you may, you may end up after a few years with a drive that's only, only actually has 99.5% of the space that it originally had, because a few bad sectors have now been determined as they're bad. We're not going to write to those anymore. Um, so I imagine having a big drive like that, you, you know, it's still, the drive will still only fail when a certain percentage of sectors become bad or the hardware itself, right. you know, something catastrophic goes on in the hardware. It didn't seem like there was anything there, but I, I just thought it was interesting that you could get such massive drives now. And, uh, so and I've got, uh, let's see, attached to my Mac mm -hmm. is an eight terabyte external drive. Uh, mm -hmm. but it is, uh, I believe it's, uh, maybe I, I'm not even sure. It's either two or four four terabyte drives because it actually has some kind of a RAID configuration inside the box. I've never taken a, a close look inside. 
Um, but there's there's some redundancy in there to to help both with speed and with uh, resiliency. Been using that for a long time. Um, in fact, our occasional uh, guest slash co-host Kevin is the one who turned me onto that one some time ago, and it it was a workhorse uh, for a very long time. Yeah, and I've then. Got- <clears throat> on my uh, when I went to a laptop only as my primary machine last year, I got myself a, a USB three external six terabyte drive from the same manufacturer because it seemed like they were a little bit more, um, uh, like I said, resilient uh, quality wise. Uh, but I'm not sure even what kind of drive specifically is inside the box. That thing has been serving me well and actually continues to serve me well. It's, it's now connected up to my new desktop machine. Uh, one of the reasons that I got the desktop machine that I got is that I wanted options. And one of those options is to take, you know, the, at some point in the future, uh, the 16 terabyte or someday the 32 or the 64 terabyte drive and install it in the box um, and just, you know, have, have it be an internal drive with all the, the speed and, and goodness that that seems to imply. Hmm. I, uh, right now I've got a internal one terabyte SSD drive. Right. Then externally I've got a, a five, I'd say a four terabyte time machine drive and a five terabyte like external drive, which doesn't seem to make sense. And it's exactly what I warn people not to do. Like the, the backup drive should be bigger than everything you've got, <laughs> you know, but right. it used well, to it be. It depends on what you're backing up, but yes. Well, it's yes, true. Yes. So it used to be, I used to have one terabyte internal, one terabyte external, right? So two terabytes total to back up and a four terabyte time machine drive. Well, the one terabyte external drive got a little too crowded. So I wanted to replace it. And it just didn't make any sense to go to a two terabyte drive when for 20 bucks more, I could get a five terabyte drive, right? Right. So I don't have any plans to fill it up. It's just barely over one terabyte used now, but it just didn't seem to make sense to to not do that. So yeah, I've got a more stored uh, or more storage space than I have backup space, but I'm actually using much less. And eventually I'll get, I'll just have to get a new, time machine backup drive that's probably like an eight terabyte or 10 terabyte drive but i don't have to do anything right now and the funny thing is is the old drive the old terabyte drive i need to replace the network drive i've got set up uh for household stuff at home uh for my family who all use macbooks and including me and they all back up a time machine over the network and there is a 500 gigabyte drive hooked up to that to my router for them to back up. That doesn't seem like a lot. (laughs) It doesn't. And here's the thing. So I said, oh, well, it's a good thing. I've now got this terabyte drive I could replace it with. I looked, I'm still not using very much of that uh, 500 gigabyte drive. And the reason is, is because the rest of my family are normal people. (laughs) And which means they don't have video projects and and Xcode right. projects and you know just huge things like that. They right. have they like like surf the web and check their email and if you know have just a handful of photos that they've taken and they cherish and all this. Yep. They don't need that much. It's you know it's it's an interesting reminder that you know there are certain people like you and me and lots of our listeners I'm sure that do need terabytes of you know drive space to save all sorts of stuff. Right. Uh, but there's lots of people that barely have any data at all. Uh, they use computers a lot, right. but they use them to communicate 
and to do other things besides generate large amounts of data that they want to keep around. Especially in the last five to 10 years, so much of the data that they have generated to keep around has migrated online. Yeah, online. And it's pretty small. I mean, when you're, if you want to keep contacts and calendar events and messages and all that, that, you know, the tech stuff is pretty small compared to say like an Xcode project, which could be a few, you know, gigabytes just for a small app. Yeah, the, the the place where what I would call normal people uh, would start pushing some limits are folks that enjoy taking pictures and yeah, pictures. folks that enjoy taking yeah. videos, even if it's just with their iPhone or their and you know their mobile phone. Um, that kind of stuff does add up, and if you're backing it up properly, it should be taking up space somewhere other than that one place in the cloud, right? It should be showing up on a machine right. at home or something. Exactly. And uh, one interesting thing, though, is a lot of photography has moved, you know, into a different space. And I'm thinking uh, particularly like Snapchat type space where the photo being taken isn't actually being something that like is being stored. This is a photo I have now. It's in my library. It's just basically something you take. It's sent to other people and that's it. You don't keep it. Right. And this is interesting to me, and it's a generational difference, uh, but you know that is definitely happening now. So definitely the rest of my family takes more pictures than I do on a regular basis, but they keep few of them. Right. And then when we do something like go on a vacation, then I you know, take a thousand pictures in right. a week, and there, those thousand pictures are permanently added to my library and yep. archived and backed up forever. Yep. Um, they may come home from that same trip with 20. Right. So, yeah, I've, and I think tools, like you said, Snapchat, or I think TikTok is another one. Uh, yes, where TikTok, good idea, good they, uh, example. The, basically, in a way, they're training people that photos are ephemeral, that they go away after a while, right. which is, you know, has pros and cons. I mean, there, there's, there's reasons to go both ways. I am a digital pack rat. Um, I, I save everything. Um, it's, you know, it's just the way I am. And uh, that's definitely countered that culture. I agree. Well, I think it's good for uh, photographers, both professional and amateur, because mm-hmm. it used to be that the only pictures ever taken really were from professional or amateur photographers, and everybody else maybe took a few shots, like went through a roll or two of film a year. Right. And then we got to a point where everybody's taking pictures with their cell phones, and now it's, everybody's an amateur photographer. But now we're going back to a point where a lot of those people are using Snapchat, TikTok, and other things, uh, and not saving their pictures. And now it's back again to the professional and amateur photographers to actually document life. Yes. So, yep. yeah. Anyway. I will take that role. I enjoy taking pictures. Me too. But most of my life will be pictures of Corby's. So, you know, nothing <laughs> new there. Yeah. Um, actually, that segues really, really nice into, oh, the, that's right. I almost forgot. So one of the things that um, I talked about on Ask Leo some time ago was trying to put some of these numbers into perspective. I was using it in terms of bandwidth, you know, how fast is 300 baud versus a gigabit, you know, those kinds of connections and how long does it take to download data and how big is data anyway? And we keep hearing of things measured in, well, you can store this number of movies, that number of this, that kind of stuff. I came up with my own unit of measurement. I went and looked at uh, the Gutenberg project, which is a project that has free uh, downloads of public domain works in text format. And one of the very first ones they did when they started, gosh, 
couple of decades ago, um, is the Bible. And the Bible, if it's in plain text, turns out to be about five megabytes, which is kind of surprising to me. It, I mean, most people have a sense for what a Bible looks like, how big it is, how much it weighs, how long it would take to read if, they, if they're so inclined, that kind of thing. Um, five megabytes doesn't seem like enough, but it is. That's how big the text file is, and it has everything in it. So your 16 terabyte drive, three million plus copies of the Bible. Yeah, and coincidentally, uh, a photograph of some corgis usually comes in at about five megabytes five as megabytes, well. Yeah. <laughs> so you could say it's also three million corgi photos. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I got my work cut out for me. I got some pictures to go take. Yeah. Um, anyway, what I was going to say is this segues really well into our little blatant self-promotion because I actually picked for this week one of my most common questions, one of the things that I hear from people all the time that are, very, that are basically very frustrated or in some cases admit very sheepishly that they don't back up. It's also one of the places where Windows PCs specifically, I think, still fall way short from Mac. As you pointed out, Gary, um, you know, backing up a Mac is actually really, really easy. You get a drive that's big enough, you plug it in, you click here, you click here, and you're done. Things happen. Um, that is not the case for uh, for PCs, and especially with the, the plethora of devices and so forth that we're now using, uh, it becomes a, a problem that uh, really does take some amount of cognitive effort to go out and solve and make sure you've got all the bases covered. Anyway, the article I'm going to point people at this week is how do I back up my computer? It's askleo.com slash 6643. And it is one that I try and keep relatively up to date as things change. But the bottom line is you got to do it. You just got to do it. If you intentionally delete pictures, great. Good for you. Um, you know, you're, you're clearly, you're, you're following a trend. But if you're like me and those pictures disappear without uh, intent and you can't get them back, that part kind of sucks. And it's totally avoidable, which is one of the reasons that I continue to harp on backing up a lot on Ask Leo. So how do I back up my computer? Do it. Cool. Yeah, I did a video on uh, this uh, last week or so on how iCloud is not a backup because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, back up my Mac to iCloud. And it's like, no, you don't. <laughs> it's, you, you're storing your data there, but it's not technically a backup. And I explained why you need to have a backup anyway. And, of course, predictably, one of the comments I got from that was, <laughs> so... So if I'm saving my data iCloud, I don't need to back up? I'm like, no, that's watch the video. That's <laughs> uh, the title of the video where I say, no, you can't. But anyway, uh, my blatant self-promotion this week is I've got a new course, my first one in a little while. Yay. It actually, uh, as you and I are talking, Leo, is not out yet, but it will be out Thursday morning uh, and announced in the MacMost newsletter. And it's a course on using Mac pages. Uh, it's the second edition of a course I did I think almost four years ago, um, but this time it's at my own courses site rather than uh, a, a popular big other courses site. Uh, so in my newsletter, I'll be announcing it with a like a launch coupon. So I'd imagine a lot of people cool. who want and, that and listen to us probably already subscribed to my newsletter at macmost.com. And pages remind me that is equivalent to what in the PC? That's world? equivalent to Word. Oh, really? It's the word processor. Oh, yep. okay. So you okay. could do, and you could do page layout stuff. So it's like Word plus a little bit of Microsoft Publisher in there too, you know. Okay. You, yeah, design and layout things, flyers, newsletters, that kind of deal. Very nice. 
Very so, nice. Yeah. Well, you know, for saying that we don't care if it's an hour or less or more. I know. We are coming in at almost exactly one hour's that? worth. I don't know how we do it. We've right. trained ourselves for the previous 84 episodes or 85 episodes, I guess. Hmm. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh86. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at the TEH podcast. Tell a friend, if you're enjoying this, have them have a listen. Uh, you know, we, we enjoy doing this, but we'd love it when we had more, more listeners. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And we will see you again here next week. Take care.